Father, as we come to your word, we pray that we would learn the truth that is in it. Lord, that we would understand that your word is all truth, that your word speaks the truth, and that your word gives us an accurate um, understanding of the way that the world is and why the world is the way that it is. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark for these questions, but you have told us these things in your word. And we pray, Lord, as we come to it, we would submit to the teaching you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to start by reading Genesis 3, but I'm going to read the last verse of Genesis 2 and then move into Genesis 3. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, how do you explain the world as it is? It's a question that every worldview ultimately has to answer. No matter what you believe, no matter what you were raised in, no matter what you have come to that, uh, later accept, uh, the question you have to answer is, what happened? Why is everything the way that it is? Uh, at the beginning of Genesis, we see this uh, beautiful garden fit to satisfy every human need, whether we're talking emotionally, psychologically, physically, um, aesthetically, spiritually, the garden met every human capacity. It met every human need. It's the perfect place for humanity to dwell. Uh, but now we see in the world around us that this beautiful garden has weeds. It has suffering. And every worldview has what's called a creation, fall, redemption uh, narrative element to it. Uh, Christianity explains this world by a three-letter word. We all know it well. It's sin. Sin is right at the heart of the fall. Sin explains the suffering, the devastation, the destruction, the death, the dysfunction, the brokenness, the darkness. And every worldview has to answer this question, what happened? What happened? Why is it the way that it is? Karl Marx uh, invented what we've come to understand as Marxism. And it's a philosophy that's very prevalent in Western thinking. I would say that it's so prevalent that you don't even know that you're swimming in that philosophy. Um, and it's... Uh, the, it, it's basically the chief rival worldview to Christianity from the 19th century onwards, even to this day. Uh, and it holds that there is nothing else in this universe but matter, but, you know, physical stuff, but atoms. That's all that exists is, is the physical uh, matter. There's no spiritual realities, only matter, and this universe is basically one big cosmic accident. And in Marxism, the problem, the fall... 
What we have to face, the reason the world is as it is, is because of greed, privatization, oppression, capitalism. These systemic structures are evil barriers. But the ultimate evil, according to Marxism, is belief in God. Karl Marx said himself, my object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So what's the redemption element to Marxism? How do you fix this problem? Violent, social, cultural revolution. That's what Karl Marx says. And this will usher in this utopia, the proletariat rising up, overthrowing the bourgeoisie, destroying these evil elements of society through either re-education or destruction. That's how you achieve utopia. Now, we know across all of human, uh, well, at least the 20th century, how well that worked out for countries like Russia and China and Well, we're going to see how that works out for Western countries if we keep going this way. But I want to put to you this. There is no rival worldview to Christianity that can come close in giving a comprehensive and cohesive explanation for why the world is as it is. There is no other explanation that makes as much sense as Christianity. Rather than capitalism or belief in God being the problem, the real problem is sin. And the more you think about it and the more you look around the world, the more you understand It's sin. It's sin. It's in everyone. It's insidious. It's hard to uproot. It's hard to destroy. The first passage uh, we see here today is the last verse of chapter 2. And we see Adam and Eve, they're in this perfect garden. Naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. And there is no need for shame in the garden, is there? There's no need to worry about what other people are thinking. There's no need to protect yourself because you could be completely vulnerable and completely safe in the garden. There was no need to be ashamed for being vulnerable and exposed. And uh, we naturally now feel that way because people can see our flaws. We naturally want to protect ourselves. We naturally don't want to be vulnerable. Uh, You want to know a group that isn't ashamed? Toddlers, the most unashamed group of people you can possibly imagine. They will run around naked everywhere and you're just constantly having to chase them with clothes, trying to put clothes on them. Uh, They'll take their clothes off in coals. They'll take their clothes off in the local park. They'll take their clothes off when people are coming over because the reason they do it is because they don't have the cognitive capability to know what others think of them. Their ability to understand how they come across is pretty limited. They don't really know. And so for them, it's not really a big deal. When kids get older, they begin to become aware that people can see them. They are perceived by people, that people have thoughts about them and that people are watching. And that leads to the motivation to be, or to hide, to be ashamed. Shame is helpful. When you have family friends over for dinner and your toddler runs through naked, it's kind of cute. You might chase them with your clothes. It's not as cute if it's grandpa running through the house. Adam and Eve had the ability to perceive what others thought of them, but no motivation to hide. There was no motivation to hide. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to feel shame over. But that was about to change. This is my first, I'm going to give you three steps to the fall. My first step to the fall is this. Number one, question God's word. It's the first step to the fall of the human race. There is this big break in the storyline. We're introduced, it says, now the serpent was more crafty. And we're introduced to this word here as crafty. And the Hebrew word doesn't 
mean good or bad, crafty. You could be crafty in a good way. You could be crafty in a bad way. You could be cunning in a good way. You could be cunning in a bad way. But based on the context, we know that this crafty is not a good thing. It's not a good thing that this serpent is crafty. Because in a perfect garden, crafty is not necessary. You don't need to be crafty. In the perfect garden where all needs are met and the glory of God is fully displayed and His creation is fully enjoyed, crafty is something that can bring it all toppling down. It could bring it all to ruin. And the serpent, we know, is the personification of Satan. Now, the text itself doesn't identify the serpent as Satan, but we know throughout the rest of Scripture and the testimony of Scripture that the serpent is indeed Satan. It is Satan appearing in the guise of a serpent. Now, there are different views as to how this serpent is being used. Some people think that Satan spoke through a serpent or that Satan shows up in the guise of a serpent. In Revelation, Satan is described as a dragon. Either way, Satan's got this kind of like serpentile, cunning, slick kind of characteristic to him. And we know from Scripture that he was one of the most beautiful and glorious creatures in heaven. And at some point in this narrative, Satan has led a rebellion against God. He's led this mighty rebellion against God, and now he is bringing this rebellion down to earth. And we see that this serpent is dedicated to passing this rebellion on. So we're not quite sure of the timeline, but we know that Satan has been busy. He's been hard at work by this point. And, I'd imagine, considers himself to be in control. He feels he's in control. And he considers himself in the driver's seat, he's going to bring his rebellion to another creature, human beings, and what was his strategy? He comes to the woman. I find it interesting that Adam is not here. Where is Adam? Remember what his point was? Tend and keep the garden. Where is Adam? This is what he was made for. He should be here and Adam is not here. Why is she alone? It's one of his chief responsibilities and Satan slips in undetected into the garden in order to deceive. This is his purpose, to deceive. And he starts by what must have seemed to Eve a rather simple question. He says... Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a very interesting question. The more you think about it, the more interesting the question is. The answer is obviously no. Because God prohibited only one tree. Every other tree was fair game. Go for gold. Eat as much fruit as you could possibly eat. Every other tree was good. But Satan is posing this question as if God is withholding from them every tree. He's already beginning to cast doubt on what God has already said. And in an area where God speaks clearly, if you want to get around it, you have to cast doubt on its clarity. You have to make it seem less and less clear. If God speaks clearly, well, you have to try to get around that somehow. And the best way to do it is a word that a lot of theologians love, nuance. Make it less clear. All of a sudden, if clear things in Scripture is less clear, well, you can start to take different positions. You can start to take different perspectives. And in an area where God speaks clearly, if you want to get around it, as I said, cast doubt on its clarity. Satan is not seeking any information from Eve right now. He's looking for an opening. He's looking to cast doubts. And all Eve had to say here was, no, 
God didn't say that. But she explains the situation. Pay, pay very close attention to how she responds. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And sorry, Alice, this is in the slides, but I'm going to read what God actually said. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They're different, aren't they? They're different. What, she's, what has she done here? Well, she's failed to name what the tree is. Rather, she's just said where the tree is. And she's also added to what God has said. Do you notice what was missing, what God said? God didn't say anything about touching the tree, did he? And yet, here is Eve saying, if you touch it, you die. She has augmented and intensified God's command. She's amplified it. She's indicated that Adam and Eve were probably doing a lot of thinking about this particular tree. They knew where it was, and they amplified what God had said about it. They're probably doing a lot of thinking. They put this extra barrier up. You can't even touch it. We do the same sometimes to protect ourselves. Uh, we put barriers up to, uh, on, we put little rules in front of big rules to stop us breaking the big rules. And sometimes they're not necessarily bad things. Uh, my dad had a rule when I was young that I wasn't allowed in the kitchen. It's a good rule. There's a small rule to stop me from breaking the big rules, which was playing with knives or doing something that was dangerous. And it was a little rule that protected me from getting hurt, from doing the wrong thing. Uh, and if I wasn't in the kitchen, well, the options for me to do something wrong were fairly limited if I wasn't in there. Uh, and if Eve doesn't touch the fruit, well, she won't be tempted to eat it. And that's well and good. But there's one thing to put up a small rule in front of a big rule. There's another one to claim that God has also told you the small rule that you put in front of the big rule. It's a different thing. She's attributed it to God. She's confused. Confusion's begun to set in. And where confusion settles, problems are going to quickly arise. Chaos will soon follow. This is the beginning of the fall. And it occurred when the word of God was misconstrued. When the word of God was minimized, contorted, ostracized, disregarded, denigrated, called into question, and Satan's question was powerful. Did God actually say? You will hear that question whispered by Satan all throughout your life. Both in our culture, in our society, you're going to hear that question, did God actually say that? To things that God has spoken very clearly on. You will hear people say, well, did God actually say that? And all of a sudden, things are unclear, they're nuanced, they're muddy, they're ambiguous. And once you get to that situation, well, that's when lies get slipped in, don't they? Best way to hide a tree is in a forest. Best way to hide a lie is in the truth. And uncertainty is the breeding ground for this. And we're at the very threshold of disaster. T minus 30 seconds, the human race will be plunged into sin and the worst things imaginable are now possible. And it leads us to our second step to the fall. Contradict God's word. Verse 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you may originally have thought when you read Genesis 3 that Satan lies throughout this entire thing. He lies very seldom. He lies very seldom. 
He is largely telling her the truth here. The only lie is the first one. You will not surely die. That's the only lie he tells here, is that you will not surely die. With confidence and swagger, Satan says with certainty that the only reason God is withholding this tree is because he's holding you back, Eve. He's holding you back. He doesn't want to give you everything. God was giving you an empty threat. God's not going to kill you. You're not going to die. You're not going to cease to exist. The temptation here ultimately was to be like God. You can be like God. He's trying to hold you back. Mankind wanted to be like God. And the Lord knew that when Eve ate the fruit, her eyes would be opened. The Lord knew that when she ate the fruit, she would know good and evil. The Lord knew that when she ate the fruit, she would become like God. For he says in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But God didn't want us to have that knowledge. He didn't want us to have the knowledge of good and evil. He did not want us to have that wisdom. And Adam and Eve already had the knowledge of good. They already knew half of it. What they wanted was the knowledge of evil. God is all they know. He's their entire experience. He's all sorts of goodness, all sorts of light, hope. Everything was coming from God. But what they didn't know was evil and the distinction between the two. And most importantly, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be like God. Can you understand, just, for, like, just think for a second, how much of an affront this is to God? Just how much of an insult this is to Him? Can you imagine the attack on the person of God when you say your goodness isn't good enough? When your provision isn't good enough? When your perfect isn't perfect enough? In this very moment, you are slander, slandering the person of God. We're sticking our noses up and claiming that we know what is best for ourselves. God, you are holding us back. You don't know what's best. We want to be God's. We demand to write the right to know what God knows. We want to know everything. We want to be as God. God knows ultimately what's best for us. And God has done what is best for us. But we're still the same. It's in our nature. We demand that godly and neat, uh, sorry, God neatly tie every bow. That every theological question we have, God comes down and He answers it succinctly and concisely in a way that we can understand. And that God makes everything plain and clear to us. And how dare God have any mysteries? How dare God have anything that we possibly cannot attain? And ultimately, well, we want to be as God. We don't want Him to withhold knowledge from us. And everything stems from this moment in the garden. Satan took away the threat of death and Eve was sold. She took the bait and it leads to the third step of the fall. Number three, disobey God's word. Look at verse uh, six to seven. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... That the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's a very interesting sequence of events here, isn't it? A very interesting sequence of events. The woman, woman saw the fruit, she saw it, looked tasty, it looked attractive, it looked good, it, and, and mo- most importantly, that it would make her wise. That it would make her wise. That's not a lie. All those three things were true. And all she had to do was eat of it. 
Everything felt right to her in that moment. Everything felt right. This was the moment. The fruit looked good. It was attractive. It was inviting. And it held the promise of deity. And she grabbed the fruit and she ate it. And she would know good from evil. And the sin was complete when the temptation took a firm hold and led to disobedience. Disobedience was the last step. She took the fruit and she ate. She also gave it to her husband, Adam. Where were you, dude? Now he shows up. Now he, now Adam comes in. Uh, well, either she goes and finds Adam, or in that moment, Adam decides to go uh, to show up. But the implication is that he wasn't there before, and now he is. And it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This can't be reversed. Their eyes were opened, and you can't unknow what you now know. You know when you ever like accidentally watch a really gory video on Facebook and you can't unsee what you just saw? Yeah, well, they can't unknow this. They understood evil in a way that they did not before. They had welcomed the knowledge of evil in, and in doing so, had welcomed evil into their very being. And amazing that the first thing they know now that evil was there. What is it? It's that they were naked. They were naked. They were vulnerable. They were unsafe. They were in danger. This is what happens when you become aware of good and evil. And a huge amount of information just got downloaded into their brain at that moment, just got dumped onto them. And the entire world has now been changed. Neither Adam nor Eve were aware that the floodgates had just opened. Neither was aware that this act of rebellion had just been committed. And the original sin was the birth of all evil, all war, all suffering, trials that humanity would endure. This was the beginning point of it. This is where it all came into existence. And the shame causes them to hide themselves, to make some clothes, uh, to hide their shame before they would have to see God again. Who were they hiding from? Everyone. Because everything was different now. Everything was different. All sin ultimately follows these three steps that we see in the fall. It's not just the fall of humanity, but the fall of every person. Every person starts by questioning God's word. Before you go into sin, you start by questioning God's word. What's the next step? Well, you question whether God is really the wise way, if his commands are really good or not. Uh, And once you've questioned God's word, um, well, motives start to come in to disbelieve it, to question it, to ultimately contradict it, to say God doesn't really mean that. God isn't against that, you hear people say. God wouldn't care if I do this. God doesn't know what would make me happy. The last step is to disobey. We go in. And we give ourselves over to it. And the sin's complete. And the cycle repeats again and again and again and again. Whether you believe in God or not, we are all stuck in this cycle of sin. We are constantly stuck in this cycle of sin. And it gets more and more depraved the longer you are in this cycle. It gets worse and worse the longer you are in this cycle. You will know that big sins don't occur 
all of a sudden you don't wake up and decide, hey, I'm going to do meth, or you don't wake up and go, hey, I'm going to go uh, commit adultery. It's small sins that come up before that. It's small things that lead you down those paths until you end up enslaved by your sin. Uh, Romans 7, 18 to 19 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Who here agrees with Paul? How does that describe your experience? I hear that and I go, isn't that the most truthful thing? I I, want to do the good. And the stuff I don't want to do, I find myself still doing. Sin is part of us. It's part of who we are. It's once we know, we can't unknow. Once sin is entered in, you can't just get rid of it. It doesn't just get uprooted. You can't just say, I want to be a good person now. And sin's like, oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. That's all right. Go and live sinful, like go try and live a sinless life and then come back to me and see how that went. And at this point in the historical narrative of Scripture, we are hopeless. We are lost. There is nothing we can do. The creation, which was declared by God to be very good, everything was great up until this point. Every sermon was like, oh, praise God. God is so good. Look at how much God has done in this world. Look how beautiful God's creation is. And then we get to this and we're like, oh, that's why it is as it is. Romans 8, 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation groans, waiting for that day when God restores everything. And we know that the uh, fall is not the end of the story. Sin has entered the world, but sin will not have the final say. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22 For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam plunged us all into sin. He plunged us all into death. In Adam all die. The implication is this. If we were there in the garden, we would have made the same choice. If that was us there in front of the tree, we would have taken of the fruit and eaten of the fruit. We were born in sin because of the decision made by Adam and Eve on that day. But don't, don't lose sight of the fact that we were there with him on that day. We have joined the rebellion against God. That's not the end of the story. Because as in Adam all die, what does it say here? In Christ shall all be made alive. God did not end the story in the garden. The story doesn't end with us being expelled from the garden, doomed to judgment. God went after us. He intended to save us, and he did this through the seed of the woman. And throughout all of this, you may be tempted uh, to think that God had let this get away from him, that he was no longer in control, that God was like, oh my goodness, this this didn't go the way that I intended. I, 
totally had a different plan or purpose for this, but we know that God is sovereign, that God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, that they would make this decision. He knew that this event would unleash unspeakable suffering and evil in this world. Uh, And we know that God isn't the author of sin. He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He doesn't coerce anyone into sin. He doesn't make anyone make the decision, but he allowed this to happen because in his masterful plan of salvation, he was going to make it all right and draw glory to himself. He was going to show himself to be a God of mercy, of kindness, goodness, grace. And scripture ultimately never answers the question, why did God allow evil? It doesn't answer that question. But if you grab that question, why does God allow evil? Why did God allow this terrible thing to happen? And you take that question and you put it before the cross of Jesus. You put it before Jesus. We know what the answer isn't. The answer cannot be because God doesn't love us. To our astonishment, we see God, the subject of the fall. God bearing the penalty that Adam and Eve and their offspring would bear. God bore the punishment that humanity deserved. God never sinned and yet he died. Try to wrap your head around that. He never sinned, which was the prerequisite for dying here, and yet he died for us. He suffered weakness and death. And so the question comes, have you ever lost a loved one? Well, you look to the cross of Jesus and you see the father losing his only son. Have you ever felt lonely, abused, Well, there's Jesus facing the ultimate loneliness and rejection. Have you felt meaningless or worthless? And then there on the cross is Jesus being punished as a petty criminal. When we scream out in pain, why God? Why have you let this happen? There is Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we look to the cross of Jesus, we see a man who suffered everything that we have suffered, but he also suffered more, suffered more. On the cross, Jesus' suffering went way beyond the physical. He wasn't just being put to death. You've heard stories of Christian martyrs going to their death, singing, praising God, not crying out in pain as they were being put to death. So why is Jesus in the garden sweating blood, stressed to the point where he's asking God that this cup would be passed from him? Why the difference? Why are Christian martyrs going to their death gladly and Jesus is sweating blood? Because he had to drink the cup of God's wrath. On the cross, Jesus was experiencing cosmically what we deserve. He wasn't just experiencing the sin of one person, but the entire world. And you see, we don't want God to be in control, uh, but we don't, want, we don't realize that uh, God is the source of all life and light. Christ experienced cosmic, absolute, utter, infinite suffering in your place so that you would never have to bear that that you would never have to suffer that, that ultimately, though you die, yet shall you live. When you eat of that fruit, it says he shall surely die, but God says, I will die in your place. The fall of Adam and Eve gives us a fresh reminder of God's love because he didn't destroy us or write us off. Imagine you were making some sort of, I don't know, computer world, and something went wrong in it, you can just like press delete, start again. God did not press delete. He went after us. And he showed us just how much he loved us. So the fall explains the world as it is, but the cross explains the world to come.
Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're burdened by sin in this world, by our own mortality. This feeling that all our works, all our striving is in vain, it's meaningless. But we know in Christ that you will make all things new, that all things will be resurrected, that your spirit goes forth, that your kingdom grows, and that all our work that we do here on earth is eternal. That all these things we do are eternal. And Father, we thank you that you did not press the delete key, but you restored us. That you uprooted sin, which had found its way so deep in our heart, and you took that punishment, and you died even though you never sinned. Father, we were there in the fall, but thank you, you did not abandon us. We love you, Lord, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.